I gotta say, misfire for me. Ah, uh, nice. <laughs> How many um, fire puns can we make? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Plot Devices, episode 27. There's not really a joke for this one. There's a Simpsons gag about the number 27. There's like three of you who might get it, so I'm not going to make the joke. I will, however, introduce the team for today. I am your host, Brandon King. I am one of your uh, hosts and producers for, you know, whatever for today. Alongside my trusty co-host, Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you doing today? You know what, Brandon? Here in Phoenix, AZ, we are hitting those 100-degree weathers. So uh, let me tell you, it's hot. But it is not as hot as the stuff we're cooking up here on Plot Devices. So let's go ahead and jump into all the stuff we have to talk about today. It's been, it feels like it's been a minute since we hopped on here to, to discuss releases. But um, after that spoiler review of Multiverse of Madness, I'm ready to dive into that and so much more with this full episode. It's not fun in the desert, but yo, it is fun is what you've actually, what you thankfully tagged for me is our spoiler review for Multiverse of Madness, which you can go check out right now. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, RSS feed, whatever floats your boat on that. We're going to hop over into our main topics and oh boy, we've got a first topic for you guys. We've joked and joked and joked about Avatar 2 for over a decade now, it seems like. Uh, fun fact, this was originally scheduled for 2014. It's been delayed at least a dozen times since, but it seems like we are finally getting it because this past week, after IMAX previewed for Doctor Strange, we got our first look of Avatar 2, now titled Avatar The Way of Water. So the Reddit leaks were right. So take that for what it is. Uh, the film picks up a decade after the events of the 2009 film. It will continue to focus on Jake Sully and Neytiri's family and the challenges they face on an ever-growing Pandora a decade after that first movie. You have Sam Worthington, Zoe Saldana. CCH Pounder, Giovanni Ribisi, Sigourney Weaver, and Stephen Lang, all returning from the first film, joined by Michelle Yao, uh, Edie Falco, uh, Cliff Curtis, Kate Winslet, and Vin Diesel, uh, the last of whom is in an undisclosed role. Sigourney Weaver will also be not in her original role. Stephen Lang is not in an original role. It's a whole thing with Cameron, and we'll get into it. Uh, but Avatar The Way of Water is set for release, hopefully, on December 16th, barring no more delays. Noah, we have wondered about this trailer for a long time. We heard the initial response when uh, Dr. Strange was getting all of its IMAX previews. We were like, this is the greatest trailer ever. Is it the greatest trailer ever? I don't know. <laughs> Part of me just wants to immediately go, no, because it's been decades. It's been a while since I even wanted this. And now it's in front of me and I'm supposed to be excited. But I think, no, mostly I'm coming off of this like, okay, until I see like what the story is going to be about, until I know like how our characters are going to be used a decade after we've seen them, like what timeline are we at now? It looks like um, Jake and Natiri have to, like a family. I mean, that's what he says. Like that is the fortress that they have to protect in the trailer is their family. So how far would they lean into that? If there's five movies planned, what can be accomplished in this singular sequel? Um I like the mention of these uh, additional cast members. I think that's really going to elevate like its significance uh, besides it being James Cameron's return to Pandora. Um, but you know what? The first one was super imaginative. I don't have doubts for the second. I think that it still will, you know, mark a new, mark a new high for what um, that filmmaker can do. So I'm excited. I didn't think it was the best trailer. Brandon. Is it the best trailer of all time? No. Is it the best trailer of the 2020s? No. Is it a very good trailer? I think it's a very good teaser uh, in that it shows exactly what I think James Cameron wanted to get across, which is like, look, we have taken long enough. I have heard the jokes. I know what it is, but this is my baby, or at least it's one of my four babies that I'm coming up with in the next five years. And I want to show you what I can do with this. And credit to him, 
it looks amazing. I know that everyone has been going over that um that one shot of one of the Navi like tightening the rope and how the water and the skin, the log all kind of mesh together in this really hyper realism sort of way. Like that's one thing. I think the new creatures look great. I think, I don't know if this is Pandora. It might be a different planet. They've been talking about like going to explore different atmospheres, but like all the underwater stuff looks great. I'm wondering how much the team from Aquaman had any inference on that because they're both Warner Brothers. But yeah, this is a great teaser. I think it sets a really high bar for what it is. I want to know the story, obviously. I'm, I should also mention, um, there was an announcement that the first Avatar is going to be re-released briefly in theaters in prep for this. And I think that is a great idea because, you know, there's people like us who haven't seen it in 10 or something years. So I'm curious to see what the actual story and engagement of that was, because that's always been the big critique of Avatar. But as the first teaser goes, I was not blown away, but I was very much like, okay, I'm on board. Wanted more to say, but there's not really much in this. We'll just have to wait for the next mainline trailer and we'll get to it when we get to it. But we will move on to another hotly anticipated sequel, Dune Part 2. Noah and I, of course, were obviously huge fans of the first Dune. You can go back and listen to our review for that. And we've been wondering for a while who could join the cast. We had a couple rumors that were confirmed this week, as well as our main villain. Deadline first reported the news that Christopher Walken, he is going to be playing Epper Shaddam IV, which is confirmed by Warner Brothers earlier this week as well. Jose Ferrer originated the role in the 1984 film. Uh, in addition, we also got news that Florence Pugh and Austin Butler, who were rumored to be part of this for a while, they have been confirmed to officially join as Princess Arula, which is Paul's other on and off love interest, and Fade Rautha, who was the guy Sting played in the original. And that's basically all I know about him, because I don't know much about Dune. They will be joining returning cast members in, of course, Timothy Chalamet, Rebecca Ferguson, Javier Bardem, and Stellan Skarsgård, as well as, of course, returning director and co-writer Denis Villeneuve. It is set for release on October 20th, 2023. No idea if it's going to be that next HBO Max model as well, but it will be in theaters Noah, I know that we both have limited experience with like the Dune verse, so to speak, but just on a pure casting level, does the idea of Walken joining, as well as Pew and Butler finally getting confirmed, does that increase your excitement at all for Dune Part 2? Very quickly has the story around Dune's two, Dune Part 2's casting followed that of Oppenheimer, where we are continually getting new and new names that are just making us go, damn, this ship's about to be so heavy with all of these uh, with all of these names to share the screen. Uh, the addition of Austin Butler and Florence Pugh, I'm especially more Pugh than Butler, just because I'm more of a fan of Pugh's um, portrayals. And then we have Christopher Walken, who... Uh, I remember immediately from Click and Balls of Fury. I wish I knew some of his more serious roles, but those come to my mind because I loved his comedy growing up. Um, I think, uh, I think I enjoyed him a lot because of, uh, our clips that we had at home or DVDs of old SNL, um, bits. And so to see him show up and, uh, flex his comedy chops, I know he can really pull off some dramatic roles. So the fact that he's the villain in this next entry, I think we have something to look forward to. I think that that's going to be a very wonderful character um, in portrayal alone. So maybe I'll have to do some research, but I kind of want to be surprised by Walken's take on the character. The Deer Hunter, Seven Psychopaths, and Catch Me If You Can or Your Homework. That being said, this is interesting. Uh, obviously, like, we're massive Florence Pugh fans on this podcast. Like, at this point, she can do no wrong. The uh, the Little Women expanded universe, so to speak, of her and Timothy Chalamet just constantly getting projects together. Uh, which I think is great, and I think she'll provide a really interesting contrast to Timothy's version of Paul and whatever Zendaya is going to be doing in the second movie. Um, Austin Butler, from everything we've heard, in fact, actually, Lisa Marie Pesley just came out on Twitter and basically said, like, he should win an Oscar for coming into um, uh, his role in Elvis. I don't know about that yet. I'm fascinated by his role in that. He hasn't really had a chance to break out, and this could be, 2023 could frankly be a really huge year for him, but that's a whole other thing. The Christopher Walken thing is interesting. Like, I always forget. 
this is going to sound so bad. I always forget how old Christopher Walken actually is. I always imagine him in like in his mid fifties. So like the idea of him being this kind of reclusive in the dark shadowy figure that Ember Shahad is supposed to be, that didn't click for me at first. And then I looked up a couple other photos and I was like, yeah, I see where they're coming from. I will ever definitely bring up that the complaints that there are no Middle Eastern or Egyptian or Persian actors of descent in this very heavily influenced from Middle Eastern culture movie for the second time around are a bit concerning, especially when you had room to add these really pivotal, well-developed characters. I, of course, share that sentiment, and I wish they had gone with a different direction on that. Do you, you and I, like you said, we're not as like acclimated to this Dune verse that involves the books too. Do you know if this part two is following the first novel or if it's taking um, bits and pieces from the future? Because the original Dune, we knew that that was incredibly like overly expansive for what it had to do in the, in its solo film. But um, now that we have this one, I'm curious of what their, what their source material will be. Yeah, you'll remember this. There was criticism around the first Dune of just like, oh, it's only tackling the first half of the book. So it's only so much and yada, yada, yada. Screw that. It's fantastic. But yes, Dune Part 2 will be addressing the second half of that where I won't go into spoilers, but there are certain things. If you watch the 1984 version of Dune, where Paul kind of comes into his own, we see more of the Emperor. We see more of the galactic strings pulling that regarded for that. There is supposed to be a third film in development, but apparently that depends on how well Part 2 does. So it again leaves us hanging for, you know, whatever Dune is going to do next. But yes, Part 2 will be addressing the second half of the novel. We are going to move on to our third and final topic for today. Uh, probably the one that I'm I'm kind of the most proud that this actually happened. This is a long time coming, and I'm really happy for it. At 93 years old, James Hong has officially become the oldest recipient for a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. For context, the Walk of Fame started in 1960, when Hong was 31 years old. He had been working for 10 years at that point. James Hong, you may not immediately know his name, but you have seen his face or heard his voice in over 700 movies and TV shows. He's been in everything from Mulan to Big Trouble in Little China. He guested on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Seinfeld. Uh, and most recently, he can be seen in Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is in theaters everywhere right now. You can go check out our review if you are so inclined, as well as Netflix's Wendell and Wilde, alongside uh, Key and Peele and the team behind uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, which is going to be hitting Netflix later this year. He is a legend in the industry. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis was at the ceremony. Tia Carrera from uh, Wayne's World was there, which he also started. And Daniel Day Kim was also there, who actually started a GoFundMe campaign to get Hong a star on the Walk of Fame back in 2020. Finally worked out. And if you've seen any of the pictures and videos, he's an absolute delight. Like, he's 93, and he has not lost one ounce of liveliness and authenticity. Noah, over to you. I know, you know, we kind of think, oh, you know, the Walk of Fame, it's all glamour and, you know, no subs kind of thing. But it is great to see a performer like Hong Yes, for his age, but also someone of Asian descent who has been at it for so long getting recognized. It's so beautiful to see recognition after somebody who has committed their time and um, life to this industry um, and has seen others be awarded that star uh, time again ahead of him where he had he had put in just as much effort and worked so hard. So I think at any time, if the recognition can come, I mean, obviously you want people to smell the, what does it smell the flowers while they're there? Uh, yeah, however, <laughs> however that phrasing goes, I am so appreciative that this happens while the star is around for them to appreciate it because for it to happen after the fact, um, like when they're no longer involved in the industry or they're no longer um, with us, I think that that can be, it's incredibly a disservice to not, you know, shine light on them when they can feel all of that um, joy and all of that applause for them. So 
this is all about recognition. And I'm happy that Hong has finally been recognized because yeah, you said it there. If you don't know the name, you'll immediately recognize the voice. Or um, once you see his face, you'll realize that all the works that he's been involved in and how much you've seen of him growing up. Oh, hundred percent. And like, I stand by the idea that like, again, the walk of fame is not the greatest honor in the world, but it's more of the principle of it. If that James Hong as a performer, it's always great to see or hear from him. You always know who it is. And just getting to see the press junket from him in the last couple of weeks of just seeing how lively and exciting and just eager he is to tell a story. There's actually a really great uh, CBS Sunday morning interview with uh, Ben Mankiewicz that really dives into kind of the good and bad of his career all in like eight minutes that I thought was just fascinating. And it's just great seeing him get his flowers. The ceremony looked great. I, I love how Jamie Lee Curtis was just like, yeah, it's effing time. Like he's one of the greatest people I know. Like I love that even new cast members are still singing his praises. And it's a great, it's a great time for Asian representation. You know, obviously we need more of that, but like, it's a great thing for what it is. And with that, we are going to hop into our quick hits portion of the show. This is, you guys are familiar with episode 27. You know what this is. It's the part of the show where we take uh, one second, where we take, where we take one minute each to talk about a new story that maybe we don't want to go into a full discussion about, but we figured you guys should be able to know about from some point of view. Noah, do you mind starting off? All right. I will kick off with my kick hit, kick hit, my <laughs> quick hit here in about two seconds, one Okay, the first trailer for Netflix's Resident Evil series has been released. This trailer shows off a new Raccoon City taking place in 2022, but actually is pulling source material from the video games. So all of the video games from Capcom, the survival horror game franchise, I'm sure you're familiar with from the Mila Jovovich uh, movies, as well as all of the games, all of the animated TV shows and entertainment uh, pieces out there. So this new Netflix show will actually have the game serve as a background. So everything that's happened will be occurring still, but we're following two new characters, or I'm sorry, one familiar character in Albert Wesker, who is going to be portrayed by Lance Reddick of the John Wick franchise as Sharon or the hotel manager and a new character in Jade Wesker. I'm not sure if this will be the daughter of Wesker or some, some family tie exists there. And I'm interested in finding out what that looks like. Uh, the trailer looks gory. It looks action heavy. It looks so exciting as it takes place between two different timelines. The series will be eight hour long episodes and I can't wait this year. I think <laughs> next <laughs> I'll look up the release date later, but um, it, it sounds fascinating. And I will admit, I watched the trailer. If it wasn't for the umbrella, I would not pegged it as Resident Evil. I would agree. It's because of the the reboot nature of it. It's like they're rebooting it from from now this new um, origin point in time, which is our modern day. And so they're working in, I think, new technology and new like I don't know structures of their city. I just I'm I'm really eager to see it because the Welcome to Rat- Raccoon City movie that released last year, or I don't even know if it came out this year, but it was just a bomb. Like I I really we didn't even cover it because it was kind of disappointing for me. Yeah, that that movie was really supposed to kickstart a lot, and I feel bad for the cast. All right, Brandon, what's your quick hit? It is going to be a dense one, and I'm going to I'm guarantee you I'll go over long, but I'll try. In three, two. So, do you like Mexican pizza, the cult favorite from Taco Bell? Yes, we're talking about that on a movie podcast. Trust me, it's worth it. Uh, would you like a musical about it? You're going to get one. This is fascinating. I only have 50 seconds. Let me try. So in March of this past year, in 2022, Doja Cat, yes, that Doja Cat, made a TikTok with a fake song about her love for Taco Bell, the then discontinued Mexican pizza. That TikTok made enough impact for Taco Bell to actually bring back the item. Yay, everyone's happy. Fantastic. Except uh, around the same time, another TikTok performer, Victor Kunda, made a, made a parody inspired by that Doja Cat TikTok about a fictional Mexican pizza, the musical. That wasn't going anywhere, right? Until 
Taco Bell basically said, hey, Victor, you and Doja Cat should make this uh, a Taco Bell musical. I'm going to go over long and I don't even care. Uh, I'm going to try. These two combined made the Taco Bell official musical, which was announced by Taco Bell this past week. And now Dolly Parton has thrown in her star-studded boots in the mix with an Instagram post of a picture of the script saying, I am now in the Mexican pizza musical, hashtag with Taco Bell. This falls in the footsteps, of course, of Ratatouille's musical in 2021. TikTok has been doing this in for a while. It's The songs are actually going to be written by Abigail Barlow and Emily Bear, who just won a Grammy this past year for a Bridgerton musical that I don't know was on TikTok, but they've experienced with this. Needless to say, Mexican Pizza the musical is a thing. It's going to be dropping on TikTok May 26th. Likely, as you're hearing this episode, I have no time left, but it sounds fascinating and weird, and I'm all for it. Anton. <laughs> Anton! Brandon, Dolly Parton for a Mexican Pizza Taco Bell musical? What is what is this multiverse that you've just opened? I would never believe you unless you like presented the story to me. I... Want to know, did you tune into that Ratatouille musical? I did, and it was better than I had any right to be. Wow. I remember hearing one song that I was like, oh, this is part of the real musical, right? And they're like, no, it's not even, it's not actually a thing, but it is a thing because it's, it exists on TikTok. And so, oh, that's another world. It's another world. Soon, plot devices on TikTok. Look out for it. Let us know if you want us to review the, uh, Mexican Pizza the musical. <laughs> it is technically a full length thing. I like that idea. Writing it down. Uh, let's hop into our movies for today. Uh, we're actually going to start off this week with our non-spoiler review for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Once again, if you want to check out our full-length spoiler review, it is over on the channel right now. And actually, Noah, you actually did a full-length uh, review for ASU Odyssey, so please go check that out if, you, if any of you are so inclined. We are going to take just a little bit of time to go into our non-spoiler thoughts. I will quickly run down the synopsis because I'm sure at this point most of you have heard it already. But we pick up several years after the events of the first Doctor Strange movie. Benedict Cumberbatch is once again playing the Sorcerer Supreme, except he's not. Uh, Wong is actually the Sorcerer Supreme, once again playing by Benedict Wong. They're kind of going about their business. Uh, Stephen is at the wedding of his ex-girlfriend, Christine, once again played by Rachel McAdams. And they find a monster attacking the city, and specifically a lost girl named America Chavez, played by Social Gomez, if any of you are familiar with her work in the Babysitter's Club. And it essentially leads into a giant multiversal odyssey adventure full of Sam Raimi's weird directing quirks, a lot of blood, a lot of darkness, and a lot of really huge cameos that have been dividing the internet and the comic book community by storm. Noah, as I already mentioned, you already did your review for ASU Odyssey, which everyone can go check out. We've done our spoiler review. Just in a condensed uh, thought process, we're going to keep this to a few minutes. What did you think of Multiverse of Madness? Out the gate, bless Raimi for providing a standout amongst the MCU phase four um, and even the other phases before, you know, Endgame. I think that it was we got lucky if we could actually like smell and see a director's touch kind of come through the lens when we're watching a superhero movie or at least the Marvel superhero movies. But I felt immediately once Multiverse of Madness transitions to like let almost like letting Raimi take the wheel instead of just getting what we're used to from these Marvel movies. That's where I believe it just became something new for me, something so refreshing as, as a fan um, of the franchise so far, and also being able to enjoy it with the people around me who seem to be able to pick up on its nuances and on its um, just overall hilarious, freaky nature, uh, even if they hadn't seen like everything that the MCU is involved with, the Disney Plus TV shows, all of the movies that come before it. You very quickly forget that this is a sequel, which is both a good and a bad point, right? Yeah, I think so. And actually, we should also mention this is the first movie that you and I actually sat down to watch together, which was a whole... Very true. The whole Plot device. Experience. Plot device bonds. Yes, totally. Uh, we like each other. Don't don't spread false rumors about us. Um, I appreciate what you said about in terms of phase four, because I think it is easily maybe except for 
maybe except for like certain moments of Shang-Chi is maybe the most distinct that any MCU movie has been. And that has, of course, gotten a lot of the discourse around, you know, was Raimi taking it too far? Is it too dark for, you know, family-friendly audiences? I thought so at first, and I still stand by that there are still moments that are not for kids. But I still think this is very much still an MCU movie in terms of structure, in terms of tone. I like where we get in terms of, we mentioned in the spoiler review, the kind of trifecta themes between uh, Stephen Strange, uh, Wanda Maximoff, and then uh, America Chavez, and the idea of happiness and how much that warrants and what you're willing to sacrifice in order to get that. I like how Raimi tackles the darker edge of those desires, the kind of not quite seven deadly sins of like Shazam or anything, but like kind of around the same angle. I appreciated that. Uh, Cumberbatch is still great in this. We've, you know, we went in depth on the spoiler review. Wanda Maximoff is the MVP of this movie. I know there's been some kind of pushback around here. I, I get it. There's a, there's a question of how, of how Raimi and that, and Michael Waldron write their female characters. But I think Elizabeth Olsen's performance is tremendous in this. She has to do so much and so many details to that character to bring it into this. And I just think she knocks it out of the park. And this movie does have a heavy alternating focus. You mentioned Wanda and it's between her and Cumberbatch's Strange. This is impressive, I think, for Elizabeth Olsen because it is a balance. She was, she has spoken in interviews about how the balance was filming this feature, like this full length film while also wrapping up the final episodes of WandaVision and feeling like a conflict of her, of how she could present both characters authentically, like shooting them at the same time. So I find that just to be another impressive detail to what Olsen pulls off in this performance. Um, this, like Brandon says, there are a handful of teases here and connective layers to other Marvel titles and comic book stuff. But that's all we can leave it at for now. You know, if you are curious about the juice, we have that spoiler review up for you. But if you want to go into it blind, uh, just know you are going to be just as surprised and just as, you know, uh, rewarded for your fanboying, if you will, by this franchise. I want to expand on a point regarding the soundtrack and the composer in Danny Elfman. Uh, ever since we talked about this one sequence that involves a cup of tea and it may or may not affecting Mr. Strange. Uh, but now I've returned to that song in the soundtrack. It's literally called a cup of tea. And after you watch the movie, after you realize like it's importance, you can hear those transitional like moments in the song. And I, and I sound like such an expert talking about music, <laughs> but really it's just, it is, uh, it is a great experience just to go through a soundtrack and almost relive those scenes uh because of how like essential uh the soundtrack was to the viewing experience i i had so much fun with this movie as a soundtrack nerd you're absolutely right danny elfman brings his freaking a game to this i cannot remember the last time i enjoyed a danny elfman score this much honestly um but again like the aesthetics of it all the the pacing of it all i will admit it dips in the middle for reasons we get into in the spoiler review but without going into it i think there are just things and character arcs that kind of take a backseat to other things. Maybe it was, maybe it was Raimi's decision. Maybe it was Waldron's decision. We don't quite know, but like, as far as it is, it doesn't make the movie entirely work. That being said, it's still an exciting ride. And I think that people who have wanted to go see it have, and I think you and I have got to kick out of it for what it was. Uh, one of my final notes here, Brandon, I kind of want to pose the question to you about how it feels to have so much strange since the first movie to where by the time his sequel came around, you almost thought like this, wasn't his sequel. You thought that it was something later for him because of how much the character has done across different titles. Uh, what do you think about that question and how did that, you know, affect how you appreciate strange? 
it's interesting because you and, and I, this isn't a spoiler. It, it's the idea that there are characters from the first Doctor Strange movie who we do not get to explore as much, of the, as much in this movie because of other things. And I think that's an interesting point to be like, oh, a sequel six years later. We were talking about Avatar earlier, the idea that you need to have that fresh in your head or at least have that arc really resonate with you. And if the first Doctor Strange didn't, this really won't, or at least not in the way that I think the movie hopes that it will. If anybody has not seen the movie yet, uh, stay in your seats after the theaters because, yes, there are two after credit scenes to look forward to. Uh, one for my fun. Opinion, in my <laughs> opinion, the fun one is the better one. <laughs> one for fun and one to confuse the hell out of the audiences who don't, like, even anticipate these, like, side, these sideballs. So um, why did I say sideballs? But <laughs> moving on. For me, this is a really solid seven and a half out of 10. One of the most distinct, maybe of all time, but certainly a phase four in terms of MCU movies. Raimi certainly brought his own vision to this. And I think if you are a fan of that, of that aesthetic and of the MCU potentially going darker and weirder, you will be completely happy with this for the most part. I think the performances across the board are really solid. Elizabeth Olsen once again makes it out with the MVP. She has really taken the Scarlet Witch and Wanda to dimensions and directions that I did not expect character back going to Age of Ultron to go to, but I'm so happy that they did. The visuals are trippy, maybe not as the first one, but in a more kind of gritty way. As we mentioned, the score is fantastic. Again, there's a dip in the middle when it goes to other things. You can probably assume what I'm talking about from right now. But as far as certain story points, I wish there was more of that. I don't think it quite nails, again, its characterization around its female characters. America in particular, I think, feels a bit shafted sometimes. But it is a fun, exciting ride. It does what it needs to do. Maybe not to the degree that a lot of diehards were hoping for. But I think for me, it worked enough writing right behind you. Mine's going to be a flat 7 out of 10. Uh, in order of importance, I would say directing, and then it goes to performance, and then the third is just how uh, imaginative they continue to be. These movies, the, this universe is around sorcery. Um, Doctor Strange does have shining moments where he can display new magic that you haven't seen yet in this franchise. Um, and then there's there's kind of a I don't know. It's not really a spoiler, but there's a very heavy, like hand to hand action sequence, which some people are like praising online, but I feel more of like, I didn't enjoy it. Like I, I thought, thought it was really cool. You know, you know, so <laughs> well, at least, um, you know, walk away from this knowing that if you were, if you were joining this multiverse of madness train, um, be expected to be surprised and just go on that journey that this director, this legendary director takes you on. Um, and you will be rewarded. I think that it's it's absolute fun, and I'll I'll stand by that. And of course, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is playing in theaters right now. It'll probably be on Disney Plus uh, late July, early August. Uh, and you can also once again check out our spoiler review on the channel if you feel so inclined about that as well. We're going to move on to our next major release for this week: Firestarter, the uh, remake of the 1984 film and the adaptation from Stephen King himself. Noah, over to you. What is Firestarter about? So we have a new film that is adapted from Stephen King, and it is it has the same title as a Stephen King book called Firestarter. And the story follows a young girl as she is developing the supernatural abilities to pretty much conjure flames. She has an explosiveness to her that I think she's still understanding throughout this film. All the while, she tries to navigate this horrifying experience of like potentially exploding at the age of... I'm going to guess she's like 10. Um, her two parents are Zach Efron as Andy McGee, which we're all surprised to see. It's been a while since I've seen Efron not take on like the hunky, you know, uh, hot guy role. So I'm interested to see what this does for him, um, as well as Sydney Lemon. And she plays Vicky McGee, uh, his, sorry, the child's mother. 
Um, there's more to be said about what the plot involves that gives these humans their super, their super abilities. Um, but that's the long and the short of it. You know, the, the does, the film does follow the similar, you know, uh, superhuman story of let's see if the government gets involved because these bad guys want to chase her down. They want to use her powers for bad while we want to try and teach her to use her powers for good. And what ultimately wins out in the end. Um, I think we were both kind of feeling similar around it. We're neither one of us had it on our radar for like lengths of time. And I don't think any of us were either doubting it either, or at least I wasn't because I thought this could be very interesting to see, you know, uh, this is another story that centers around like what happens if you have a superhero in development, like, cause you have a child who's realizing their super, super, super power potential, but what if they become bad? Like what if Superman becomes the evil Superman? Um, and that's, this is a similar genre in that vein. You know, if you've seen, um, I'm thinking of the little boy and, uh, Elizabeth Banks oh, was in it. Uh, Brightburn. If you're thinking, if you've seen Brightburn, hey, we got similar themes here of fire and burning. Um, Brandon, let's hop over to you first. You know, Stephen King has had his handful of book to film adaptations. I'm not going to ask where this stands amongst those other ones because it's it's going to be pretty obvious. But how did this feel as an adaptation, knowing that it was from King himself, another King? I never read the original novel and I haven't seen the 84 film, which features a very young Drew Barrymore, by the way, which I've always found kind of fascinating in her career. Um, this is interesting, uh, because I remember for about a month, and I don't know if you begin to say emails from, uh, our press contacts who were kind of like, oh, stay tuned for, Pir- for Firestarter. It's going to be coming for screenings. I never did. And then eventually the week of release, it was like, we're not going to be reviewing this, but let us know if you cover it. So here we are covering this. And then the following like hour after I got back from work, I saw a bunch of tweets from people being like, Hey, are you guys not getting Firestarter screeners either? I'm like, oh, this is bad. Um, so I was willing to go with an open mind. I was hoping for the best. This is not good. Uh, there are two things I like about this, actually. Actually, three things. One uh, is the actual premise behind it. I wanted to see kind of a lone wolf and cub story with, you know, Zach Efron as like the grizzled dad, which you're right. It's weird seeing him as a dad, but whatever. But seeing that story of, you know, a child trying to confront their abilities in a world that wants to control them. And th- there's dynamics there that I thought could work and the trailer looked more action heavy. So maybe that could have worked. Two, uh, Michael Graes, who plays the bounty hunter in the movie, I thought he was actually kind of solid in this. I was, I was always on the mark of whether of what his motivation was, and I thought he knew, he knew how to take the mystery element a bit further than of just the simplicity of it, and I always appreciated that. And number three is the score. Uh, I should mention John Carpenter, Cody Carpenter, and Daniel Davies all do the score on this. It's great. I'm sure that the team from Halloween probably brought them in. Is like, hey, we've got this other Stephen King movie. You want to do the score for it? And they were like, hell yeah, we want to do that. Uh, and it's great. It's all the synthiness and guitar ambience that, you know, the Carpenters have done before. I liked all of that. Before I get into the stuff that I didn't like, I'm going to toss it over to you because I'm sure you have some general thoughts. The little kid as evil superhuman is not my favorite genre. And this kind of added to that point. Um, I had trouble taking it seriously because we have these moments where our, you know, um, the the child's name is Charlie McGee, portrayed by... Uh, Ryan Kiera Armstrong, who you may know from another horror title that I re- that I remembered. I remembered I'd seen her from something. She was in AHS, American Horror Story, for their double feature uh, in Red Tide. She actually had um, a major role um, in that series. I'll, I'll leave that for you to go discover. I had trouble taking this main character seriously because she is a child and she's in elementary school. And so there are scenes where she's like playing dodgeball with other kids. And kids, I think, are just naturally hilarious like they're funny you're watching them and it just makes you giggle because ha- Sorry, can we talk about that redhead yeah go go ahead 
he is a jerk. Like, even if it's like <laughs> Stephen King and Kid Movie Kids, I was just thinking the whole time, just like, you know what? I wouldn't blame you if you got set on fire. Yeah, a little a-hole. <laughs> that's, that's what we call kids, you know, straight up bullies. You're just, even then they're hilarious. But of course, to the kids, they're not. It's their, it's their real life. And so throughout the movie, um, like, like I said, there's this one dodgeball scene where um, these two boys are um, bullying the young Charlie and they throw a dodgeball like at the, at the back of her head and it just immediately bounces off. And I know it's supposed to be like a very intense moment because this is somebody who has explosive energy. Like she's like, she can just blow up or she can potentially um, throw everybody in flames around her. But I'm just laughing because these are just kids being kids. And that's why I think the, the types of like situations we found ourselves in with this movie, I couldn't help but like not feel as like I couldn't feel the intensity, I guess you could say. And I've never read the book. So I would guess it's less hilarious because of course the book is an entirely different medium and those scenes all, those scenes and situations all are interpreted differently um, for the reader. Uh, my second note is actually not regarding the movie. It's kind of regarding Peacock. So I thought this was really impressive for Peacock to have a straight to streaming on their platform uh, because in our little streaming wars, you know, we haven't really been mentioning Peacock because we haven't reviewed any standout titles from them uh but the last time i remember a movie doing the same thing was in halloween kills or um i think scream which i'm glad you brought that up it's the same screenwriter your best friend scott teams wrote this are you serious i'm deadly serious there's a connective thread between my dislike of halloween kills and mr teams i took it in i i chewed on it i'm gonna put it on the napkin on the table (laughs) I have been Uh-oh. waiting days to bring that up to you. I really am shocked right now that this, this is the first time it's happened to me. <laughs> uh, okay, but y- you know what? There are some good points to say about this movie. I think that Zac Efron is putting in the work, like his parental figure that um, he has to carry throughout the film, I think is a lot more uh, palpable, I think is the word I'm looking for. Like, I definitely feel it. And I like to see Efron outside of that hunkish role because I think that he is still a great actor to see on screen and... Um, he's handsome. <laughs> and then the mother kind of doesn't get as much screen time. She doesn't really have um, a lot more to do. But once you understand that this is a superhero family of sorts, you know, I'm sorry, not superhero, but these are like superhuman family members. And once you see more of their abilities, I think that that kind of is supposed to add more to the, to the pot. Um, unfortunately, it's just kind of all really hard to pick up. But like that to me is the biggest negative about this is like we're talking about this as like, you know, a superhero family on the road and like what complications come with that. And yet it's so boring. How do you make this boring? And it's it's 90 minutes, too. It's not like it goes overly long. Like it does what it needs to do. It goes from like two locations. It does what it does. But none of it really matters. I almost feel like they stay on a very moody tone for the majority of the movie. Like almost. I mean, let's just say it all the entire movie. And there's not even an, uh, an element of like mystery or like really intrigue up until maybe we meet Rainbird and our questions then become like, who is Rainbird and why are they special? Um, why are they the special agent who has to pursue them? Um, I just have questions of like, how else could this have been like, uh, where else could our highs and lows have been? You know, we didn't have really like a happy family moment of them all living, like co-living with their, with them being a, a bit like uh enhanced in a way the closest Um, we get with that is the scene of charlie as a baby and she's not active in that scene i gotta say misfire for me uh nice (laughs) how many Um, fire puns can we make um there's also something to be said about zach efron in this and like you're right he's super talented like he deserves better 
but I don't think really anyone in this movie, aside from Grayas, really makes it out alive. Like Kurtwood, dude, Kurtwood Smith shows up. He gets one scene, and it's all like exaggerated Bible verses, and I'm like, I know what you're trying to do, and it's not working. <laughs> And he pours out pixie sticks because that that's how we know he's an intellectual because he's organizing the sands of pixie sticks. Yeah, but like the sands of time. I get what you're doing, King, because uh, I'm also a king. Uh, but no, like Sidney Lemon is not given a lot to do. And uh, again, Zac Efron, who for the last number of years has kind of played into like the himboness of him all, like the, the hotness factor of just like, oh, God, am I so arrogant? Like that kind of thing. It's why his role in, as Tim Bundy, I think, kind of works. But like here... He's not really asked to do a ton. He's mostly just kind of sitting in chairs or, you know, kind of giving looks. There is an interesting scene with him as a, he works as like a behavioral therapist at the beginning. That was an interesting scene. Yeah, like a life coach. And that, that really turned me onto his character. Like really now I'm invested in like, who are you? And like, I should also say, if you were expecting this to be horror at all, don't. The closest it gets to horror is a scene where they meet uh, John Beasley's like kindly old man character and Charlie is going to like explore the barn. That is the closest this gets to horror. And even that it's it's not even really warranted, which I was totally a fan of. But if you are a fan of, you're not going to be interested in it. I think that had I not been so distracted by like maybe just like screaming, like going on whenever somebody like, you know, about bursted their power. I think that I really enjoyed how they, um, you know, would would show how she used her abilities. I like the camera work around focusing on her and really feeling like that energy blow off from her. Sorry, one small thing before we get into ratings. Did you watch this on Peacock? I watched this on Peacock. Did your closed captions work? Yes. Okay, because I tried like six different things to get my captions working. It said they were on every single time, but they weren't presenting. And I haven't talked to anyone else about this, so I don't know if it's a thing where they just didn't add captions or it's just like TV. Peacock, we will be tweeting you later um, from Plot Devices Pod. We're not angry. We just want to talk. We I'm brought a little popcorn. angry. Uh, <laughs> One of us is angry. We just want to talk. But let's get on to ratings either way. Uh, for me, this is a really solid three out of 10. Uh, if not only just... I'm just going to say me too. Brandon, me too. Three uh, out of 10. That's me the most I can say about it is that it doesn't try too hard. Michael Graves is interesting, and the score I will probably go back to at least once or twice. That's interesting enough. And I think if you are a Stephen King fan who does not like the horror aspect, maybe give this a shot just because, again, it might be a good gateway into like his work kind of deal. But as far as like a Peacock exclusive, I don't think it's worth seeing in theaters, maybe just on Peacock. The story is dull. It doesn't really give anyone anything to do. It wastes its material, and it's not really visually interesting beyond a couple of interesting shots. I was really disappointed by what this movie did, and I probably should have seen it coming. Burn. Damn. Uh, leave, it to my co- <laughs> leave it to my co-host to give you such an eloquent, like, well-structured review. Brandon, I agree with all your points. I think that this movie was majorly dull and um, didn't provide their characters or their audience enough to be engaged with or interact with. I think that fans of Efron will, will want to check this out just to see his diversity of uh, different characters he can play. Um if you're looking at this as a, something to be thrilled by and really get your blood pumping, it's not going to deliver that. And that's um, that's the truth. So uh, three out of 10. And and it is playing in theaters right now. It's also Simon 77 Peacock. Do not watch it in theaters. All right. We are all through talking Firestarter. So we are actually transitioning to a solo review. This one will be taken care of all by my co-host here, uh, Brandon King. He will be talking to us about Montana Story. Brandon, over to you. 
Uh, Montana Story. Spoiler, this is a significantly better movie than Firestarter. Uh, this is directed by uh, Scott McGehee and David Siegel. It is in limited release right now. It'll hopefully get wider later. I'll explain why in a minute. Uh, it's based off an original idea by them. It stars Haley Lou Richardson, who you might know from stuff like Edge of 17, uh, Save the Girls, stuff like that. Um, you, it also has Owen Teague, who I'm not familiar with. They play a pair of siblings in modern-day Montana. You have Cal, played by Owen Teague. He's working as an engineer. He comes back to their family's ranch in Montana. That's the title. Uh, their dad has been suffering from a lot of health problems recently. He's stuck in a coma. He is being taken care of by an aide, played by Gilbert Allure, as well as a couple of family friends. Uh, Kimberly Guerrero plays a Native American woman named Valentina. And Asivak Kustashin, I apologize for mispronouncing your name, plays her son, Joey. They've been longtime friends of the family and kind of taking care of the dad in the kid's absence. Cal, of course, comes back. He's doing what he can. He's trying to sell off some of the parts of the ranch to pay for medical bills. He's worrying about their aging racehorse, Mr. T, who is adorable and lovely, and I love him as a character. Then we enter Haley Lou Richardson's character. Erin uh, is her name. She's the sister of Cal. She has essentially had much worse of a time than Cal. She, I don't want to spoil anything, but she had an incident about seven years ago she ran away, and she has not been in contact with Cal since. So now she is coming back to the ranch for the first time in seven years to her brother, who she particularly blames for part of this, but also her dad, who she blames more of. Um, but again, they haven't had any contact. So now it's basically an hour and a half long drama, hour and 40 minutes-ish, to try and reconcile these two siblings, figure out what to do with the racehorse. And then Aaron basically has the idea of, well, you know, I don't want to kill this racehorse, so why don't I just bring him back with me to New York? So thus starts a plan of hers to bring this horse back to New York. She enlists the aid of a truck salesman, kind of, played by a Eugene Braverock, who you might know from Wonder Woman. He pops up in this as well. And yeah, the movie is just this really meditative study on these two siblings and what they have to do in the context of their father. I really like this. Um, you guys can read my review on ASU Odyssey. It should be up by the time you're listening to this. I did a print review for it, and I, I really liked it. But what I'm basically trying to get at is it is a very tempered drama. It doesn't really do a lot. I've heard some criticism around the script, the idea that, oh, it doesn't really go anywhere. It kind of stays in the majority of, like, two or three places. And, yeah, that's true. And I will admit, as far as just, like, if you laid this out in, like, a story structure lineup, it would not sound that interesting. And yet, I think McGehee and Siegel, both in terms of directing and in terms of writing, really know how to use both these characters. I think the dynamic between Cal and Aaron is so palpable and so fascinating. I should mention, this isn't a spoiler, but like the first 10 minutes of the movie, we don't see Aaron. It's all Cal just coming back to the place and kind of reestablishing what's going on with the dad. And then Aaron shows up and the entire dynamic shifts. I also love, where's the cinematographer's name? I had him in front of me. Uh, Giles Nutchins who actually did Hell or High Water as well. He's in the midst of kind of revitalizing how modern Westerns look, and he shoots this gorgeously. There are a lot of great shots of, like, landscapes and kind of the mountains, and there's a whole quarry that the two siblings go to to, like, discuss some of their trauma and their baggage that looks really, really great. Uh, I should also mention the performances. Both Haley Richardson and Owen Teague are great in this. They have this kind of vibe of, going back to the visuals, there is this whole idea of Montana as this kind of purgatory. It doesn't feel like a Western that I've seen in recent memory, like, a lot of times, Westerns are built up to be like this dynamic thing that goes from one place to another, that the story is kind of the focus of it all. And here, this isn't. It's much more of these two siblings are in a place that doesn't feel, it doesn't feel of our world. It feels like it's separated in like this other kind of purgatory space with each of them embodying this one identity. Cal is very much the idea of regret. He's dealing with all the sense of like, what could I have done better? What could I have done at this age for the people who I care about? And Aaron is very much... Every scene of her 
that Richardson gets to really tackle into, she has this glare about her. And I can't quite explain this, but it's this mix of anger, fear, and regret that is passed on to Cal that you can see their emotions kind of twisting with each other as the movie goes on that I was just really, really impressed by. Again, if it doesn't sound entirely like your thing, I would not be shocked. There's not, again, too much going on in this. But it was really just fascinating just how much they are able to, at just how much Siegel and McGehee are able to pull out of Richardson and Teague's performers, what dynamics they are as siblings, and how the story, especially in the second half, kind of unravels what actually happened seven years ago and what they can do in their future. For me, this is a very solid 8 out of 10. Again, the only reason it's not higher for me, and I probably I probably should rate it higher. I'm just ranking it 8 just because, again, not a ton actually happens. But the stuff that does, I thought was, again, really, really investing. If you have not bought into Richardson's performer and, you know, all the stuff that she's done, and she is a really tremendous actress, you can absolutely buy into her here. As is Owen Teague, who, again, I'm not familiar with, but I'm going to be keeping out for her stuff. They have a great sibling back and forth and a really great sense of, how trauma is addressed, how you can or should address it, and whether you even want to. Like, it's just a really great, like, overall character study. It's meditative. It's, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's gorgeously shot. Not enough people are probably going to get around to see it. It is playing limited theatrical release right now. It has probably expanded to when you are listening to this. I would highly encourage you to seek it out if you can or once it comes on VOD. Thank you, Brandon. Um, that is a wonderful review of the Montana story that you covered. And so now we will be wrapping up with a HBO Max title, and this is uh, Ben Foster in The Survivor. Yeah, so The Survivor is directed by Barry Levinson, who, if you are not familiar with the name, you've probably seen a bunch of his stuff. He's responsible for uh, Good Morning Vietnam. He very recently did uh, Rock the Casbah with Bill Murray, which Almeida was not a fan of, but it was you know fun for what it was. But he's done a bunch of stuff. He's in the Baltimore trilogy. That, look him up. He's a very prolific director. He is also uh, he's also one of the very prominent Jewish directors. This was actually a really personal project to him. He's gone on interviews uh, to talk about this as well. This is based on the real life story of Harry Haft, who, if you are not familiar with the story, as I unfortunately was not, he was TLDR, a Holocaust survivor. He was interned in Auschwitz-Birkenau in the 40s during the Holocaust. And then when he got out, he moved to America and began time as a boxer. But that actually has contrast because when he was in the camps, uh, he was forced to box in order to survive. So this is kind of him reclaiming his sport and his identity for something of his own. There's a lot of trauma involved in there. We follow Ben Foster as Harry. This film bounces back and forth between different timelines. We see back in the 40s, we see Harry in the concentration camp. He is under the tutelage is a very kind word, uh, basically the control of a Nazi officer, uh, Schneider, played by Billy Magnuson from Game Night and a bunch of other things. We then fast forward to him in the 50s. We see him form a relationship with Miriam, played by Vicky Creeps from uh, Phantom Thread, and under the tutelage of a trainer named Pepe, played by John Leguizamo. Peter Sarsgaard also pops up in here as a sports journalist trying to uncover Harry's actual story. At the time, Harry is trying to track down uh, his old girlfriend from before he was interned in the camps. That's where Miriam comes in. There's a whole thing in that. And then we do also jump into the 1960s where, you know, no spoilers, but it's Harry at a different point in his life kind of looking back on his boxing days in the camp and where he was at his career. And the whole thing kind of feels like this really interesting mix of a sports drama, a Holocaust drama, and an individual character study all, all kind of morphed into one. Noah, I really like this. I, this was on my radar for a while since uh, Danielle Salzman tweeted, about it, tweeted out about it, and I was just fascinated by the concept of it. Uh, what did you think of the survivor going into it? I think I was preparing myself for uh, completely judging it off of its cover. I was ready for another uh, very sporty movie, very boxing centric movie, but it has this um, this new element of now, 
telling this true life story of a Holocaust survivor who had to box while they were in uh, concentration camps. And so I think that the bulk of this movie, while I expected sport, I got, you know, a timeline of trauma and how it really, um, I, I can't really say shaped his life, but how it, his trauma was involved in his life from his time in the concentration camp, really having to fight to survive and then transitioning that like, cause it, it was always a battle for survival. Whoever he boxed um, while he was forced to, you know, whoever ended up winning that, that round, the, their opponent would be killed. And so now to enter into a arena and kind of like the competitive side of boxing now, like when we flash forward into his later life, it's so traumatic. Like you, it, the editing is so beautiful here because every kind of fight or intense situation, um, have to find himself in, we have these cutbacks to his, to his time, um, being tortured and really being uh, really forced to be this figure, you know, amongst all the other prisoners who were there. Um, it made him, you know, a lot of survivors don't respect him because of his actions he had to make. And, it's all around, like it, it's really a gutting experience to watch, but I think it was done so, so well. And I have a lot of good notes here to talk about. Uh, we can start with the very first one, which is Ben Foster, who I'm going to, you know, throw my flowers at for his work in horror, 30 days of night, um, Pandorum. I've followed Foster wherever he has popped up. And so I'm happy that we can now see him in this defining role where he does the same thing as others who have come before him in this fighting position where they go through body transformation. I was watching this movie and asking myself, is this CGI or is it actually like legit transformation? And, you know, I just finished reading a short snippet and this is completely foster, you know, across multiple timelines, this is him and how he has shaped his body. So the commitment to the role is incredible. And I think that that's my first point. Uh, Brandon, what did you think about foster in this? And he is a guy who has kind of gone, unfortunately, under the radar for the last several years between things like, you know, Leave No Trace and Hell or High Water and the program. And he's just uh, 310 to Yuma. Like, he has just thrown things. He has thrown performances against the wall that should not be as good as they are. And yet he gives 110% every single time. And I say that to say that this might be the best he's ever done. You bring up the idea of trauma and weights that Harry goes through in this. And I think... I really have to applaud Barry Levinson as well as uh, uh, Justine Gilmer, who co-wrote the script. I have to give credit to them for making a Holocaust movie that doesn't feel, I know this is going to sound bad, it doesn't sound like a monolith. Because for so long, I think we pictured Holocaust movies as a certain way, good and bad, you know, in certain takes and certain others, where to be like, oh, it's all trauma and it's all sadness. This is that. But it is also, like you said, where there are people in the New York Jewish community who are either Holocaust survivors or lost people in the family. Uh, Danny DeVito pops in this as well as a rival trainer who, who in a really great scene mentions that he lost a lot of his family in kind of the Warsaw ghettos and things like that. And when you see things like that, you realize, oh, Levinson gets it. Like he gets the idea of the Holocaust did so much to so many people and in ways that can never really be quantified, no matter how much we really try to address them. But we always should because there's that idea of pain and the idea that it won't go away, but you can always try and move past it for what he does. And that, for Harry's efforts, is what he tries to do. And I was really astounded by the degree that Foster is able to get out of that singular character and Harry's singular focus throughout all three time periods. While the story is centered around Harry Haft, I mentioned it before how I thought the style would remain in, in the box of other boxing narratives. But the experience of boxing in Auschwitz has 
stayed with him throughout the rest of his life as a survivor. So we see that in even in the third act where he's actually put down professional boxing, his child is um, like a preteen. So he's already had a family for nearly a decade. And so how how has his trauma and his time in the ring really stuck with him? And there's a, there's a conversation that him, Harry and Miriam have um, that is, I think so like, it's so incredible because he's reluctant to share with his child, his experiences um, with fighting and, and like what, what he dreams about and why he screams. And uh, you, you see, there's so much emotion there that he has to block because he doesn't want to let his child in on that trauma. Well, Miriam that points scene in the out. Kitchen. Oh, sorry, I was going to say there's that scene in the kitchen that enhances that where you're just like, where Miriam's like, Oh, you told me everything. No, I did not. And she says, you have to tell him about it. And he's like, you know, uh, he, he says something along the lines of like, you know, it's, he's not ready to know, like, I'm, I'm not ready to tell him or something like that. And she just says, you know, you're already doing it. Like you're already showing him what this has done to you because in your effort to try and be silent, it's affecting how you father, like it's affecting this family. And I thought that that was wonderful. I thought it was communicated so, so easily through the screen. And um, it had elements of terror intertwined because of those transitional moments back to his time um, in the concentration camps where it's all black and white. And that just, I think it betters the storytelling. I think every time they cut back and we were able to see at least a visual aid show us that we are now in a different setting where we don't know at any moment, whether his friends or he can be killed. By the way, uh, George Steele is a cinematographer on this. And I love how he shoots back and forth between the black and white of the forties, the kind of muted colors of the fifties, and then going to sixties where it's supposed to be very idealistic. It's, you know, post Eisenhower, it's, you know, Oh, America, it's best, but not for Harry because we're not supposed to be seeing that. And that goes back to the idea of placing this movie firmly in Harry's shoes and the idea that, yeah, there are times when he's not a good guy and there's times where he does have to really kind of apologize and reconcile things that he does. But we're put so firmly in him as a character and his journey throughout that it's completely understandable why he is so insistent on going about it in his own way and not letting anyone in. I did want to quickly mention uh, Billy Magnuson, who I have not seen in a lot of drama stuff. I've mostly seen him in comedies and he is terrifying in this. Uh, I would not mind him seeing more villain roles, and he plays uh, Schneider as just this really conniving, really just of his head sense of what the Nazi belief at that time was. He's despicable and horrible, but like the idea of what his character is and what he represents to Harry as a means of survival and how that ties into the story, I was really shocked at how well that worked. Definitely, I think his performance. Yeah, you know, we. I think it's worth applauding this actor for that that kind of realism he brought to the role because it's scarily good. Um, and he's a familiar face. I think I do remember him, um, as one of the princes in Into the Woods and something else. Like he pops up every now and then. So, uh, an excellent role for him as well. He was in No Time to Die. He was the traitor American agent. That's right. Uh, but yeah, let's go on the ratings for now. Uh, do you want to go first or? My rating is nine out of 10. I think that I, I hadn't expected to, uh, hop on board with this movie strictly because of its genre. Like I, I'm not um, really big into sport heavy movies. That being said, I'll watch anything for this pod, right? We talked about Bruised earlier in the year with Halle Berry's directing debut. And so I kind of felt like I'd always seen boxing movies growing up. My mom's a big Rocky fan, Creed. And so I was just preparing for one of those stories and to get something that was so much, that brought so much more emotional weight to it. That was, um, like the example of it, the major show of it wasn't the final match that he had to win. It wasn't, you know, his ultimate 
time in the ring that we had to root for in the end. Cause I think that we'd seen that already. So to be instead shown the story of trauma and how it lasts from, from the moment it hits you and like ways to cope with it, ways to find support, both in, in your own expression, as well as like your loved ones around you. Um, I was blown away. I, I, I found myself uh, completely invested in these characters. Um, I think that this is a standout performance for Ben Foster. I hope that this gets some kind of recognition for regarding like awards and whatnot. Um, because it would be a shame if this was kind of uh, swept under the rug and forgotten. At times we talk about like universal themes and how you can watch this as, as any member and still feel the real through the story so and to mention again i'm applauding the loudest for the editing i think the editing is superior here in this movie and when you're watching it you really uh i think you feel each time harry is reminded of um the time he was spent uh boxing in this concentration camp so and over to you brandon for this rating for me this is a really solid eight and a half uh again this might be the best ben foster has ever been see it just for his performance not just for the fact that he put in a bunch of work into it although that is great it's more of the idea that he gets the nuance of it. And Ben Foster, as a Jewish man, I know this meant a lot of, to him as well as Barry Levinson. You can just tell that overall, like this is a team that made this movie out of the utmost respect and knowledge for this community and knowing what it's been through. And again, I do say that as a Jewish man, so I'm slightly biased. But again, I was just so impressed by the nuance and structure of it all. The main negative that I could see is that the whole fast forward timeline isn't quite dealt with as well. There are some great moments in it but it's the 1940s and the 1950s timeline that are the real meat of this movie that you come to watch it for. It doesn't negate it by any means, just it was one of those things where it kind of, uh, it didn't feel as connective to me. But again, the cast are all great. Like you said, the editing cinematography are all great. Barry Levinson directs the hell out of this. I wish I knew more of his filmography to weigh it against, but and I should just say, I'm really proud of this movie that it exists and in the way that it does. And if any of you have left this under the rug as I did for a couple of weeks, please seek it out. It is on HBO Max right now. It's about an hour and a half, I think. Definitely go see it. It is well worth a watch. We're going to move on to our TV section. We've got two shows to cover this week. We've got the finale of Moon Knight coming up in a little bit. But first, uh, we're going to go to a Weird Old Ranch in uh, in Montana, I think. Is it Montana? We're in Wyoming, but uh, who's keeping Wyoming. track? So we <laughs> are talking... There's literally a whole scene where Will Patton's like, Wyoming, Wyoming. Uh, we're talking Outer Range. Uh, we're moving on to something a bit lighter. Noah, what is Outer Range? Yes, let's talk uh, Amazon Prime Video's latest, starring Thanos himself and Josh Brolin, um, who, let me just tell you real quick. So yes, the title is Outer Range, and what you're really getting here is a blend of, you know, Western um, kind of dominance, as we have two, they're not necessarily rivals, but they are two neighboring ranchers who, now that they are at a crossroads, because um, one of the ranchers now... uh, puts in for acquiring 600 acres of their neighbor's land. And so that immediately causes the stir here where you have two ranchers who are so accustomed to their, to their ranch life and how they do things and whatnot. Um, but now you throw this fork, you throw, you throw this fork in the wrench in the rodeo. And now all of a sudden you're wondering what the hell is this feud going to lead to? All the while we have one of the leading ranchers of the family. This is the Abbott family and they're, um, you know, the patriarch, the, the grandpa who has his holds on everything, or at least he thinks he does is Royal Abbott. And that is Josh Brolin's character. Now, as he is the rancher who is getting land taken from him, he also is coming to terms with the fact that there is this in physical enigma that he has just discovered in a hole that exists in the ground. It is about the size of, let's say, a large van, a small size parking lot, 
couldn't tell you, but um, all that we know is that it has this eeriness to it. It definitely has a nature, not of this world. And he is well aware of that. He experiments with it. He has his fun with it and it's his little secret until it isn't anymore. So we are reviewing the first four episodes of Outer Range. And I think there's a lot that this show has to offer uh, in between, you know, um, standout performances between Josh Brolin. I think Lily Taylor has some excellent times to shine. I haven't seen her before, but Imogen Poots um, is introduced to me in this series as well as being a very sneaky character. You know, she's one to look out for. And then uh, Tom Pelfrey, who I remember from Ozark, comes back as another member of the Abbott family. Um, and they're all Abbots, okay? So they're, their neighboring ranchers are all Tillersons, who are led by uh, Will Patton's Wayne Tillerson, who is um, who appears sickly. You know, he he isn't bedridden necessarily, but whenever we see him, he is like kind of resting um, when he's not talking to his um, Spanish farm workers. And so uh, he has three sons in Luke Tillerson, um, Trevor Tillerson. And their brother who loves to sing and who my partner called me out as she's like, that would be you. His name. Oh, my gosh. His name is Noah Reed. And that is Billy Tillerson. Uh, he's yeah, always singing. <laughs> he's always singing in the show like randomly. And so I guess I'm him. But anyways, uh, the Tillersons are trying to acquire more land. Uh, they are actually, as far as we know, unaware about this like physical like hole in the ground that leads somewhere. Um, and so they are actually, sorry, this show has a lot to offer you. There's actually another element to this show. And it's like a murder mystery because the Tillersons have a son that is missing. His name is Trevor. The Abbott family knows that Trevor is dead. So now we have that fork, spork, skirt thrown in the rodeo mix. And we're thinking, how are we going to balance like this murder detective arc along with this sci-fi, where does this, does this hole in the ground lead to arc along with, you know, so many different things here. And it's all like divided up and given into you in such a digestible manner that makes me a big fan of the show. Brandon, uh, we're talking the first four episodes, you know, we can talk specifics from each. We can talk about just, you know, overarching plots and the high points that we both enjoy. Um, but why don't we start with the easy stuff? You know, the casting of Josh Brolin as this lead rancher, his family rivaling up against the, the next and um, a detective who is as committed as every member of her community. Uh, that is detective, sorry, Deputy Sheriff Joy. And that's played by Tamara Podemski, who I think is another standout in this cast. But let's talk about that first. You also didn't mention Lewis Pullman, who is a royal son from uh, Bad Times Day Royale. Who was, I, Absolutely, yes. Who also, every time I see Lewis Pullman, I'm just reminding, God, you look like your dad. Uh, that's a whole other thing. Um, I will admit, when you phrased, when you phrased, when you brought the show up to me, I should say, I was curious, but I was a little trepidatious. And I will admit, watching the pilot, yeah, it was kind of that. I was not totally involved. I was not totally engrossed in, as you say, the mystery of it all, even with kind of the black hole element of it and the Imogen Poots thing. The other three episodes are better. I will admit it gets better than the pilot did. I got more into the, especially the Tillersons. Like once, uh, should we spoiler a certain character coming into play? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so much here. I don't think that there's a singular element that like reveals everything. Right, yeah. So the Tillersons, uh, Will Patton's ex-wife comes back into play, uh, played by Deirdre O'Connell. She's super fun. She comes in episode four, and she basically just takes over the Tillerson clan like in a matter of minutes, which I think, for me, it really changes the perspective of how I want to see the second half of the show. The whole sci-fi stuff, 
I'll admit, I wish we got more of. There's really only one scene in episode two that kind of frames, here's what's kind of going on. And up until that, it's basically, again, a Yellowstone-style murder mystery that just so happens to have, like, a black hole in, like, the middle of the field. And a, a community that, okay, well, first I want to talk about your point about Patricia Tillerson. She comes at such, an, such a great point in the series because, yes, if you're listening to this now, you'll well, you're well aware that uh, the entire series of Outer Range is available to stream on Prime Video. We made the choice to kind of just make it halfway through so we can at least introduce the title to you and talk about our expectations and then do a cap when we finally finish the series. Um, she comes at such a great point where I feel as some of these threads are feeling um repetitive right so we lose trevor who is the the dead body at this point um and we lose him and then he reappears and then again we have the question of what do we do with him and what kind of lies can we weave to to save our own ass well patricia does i think she's the perfect wild card character to come in and not give not give a damn about any any kind of tillerson agenda that they had before she wants to take matters into her own hands she's a force of nature of her own and i love that they brought her in when they did um another mention that i wanted to include was matthew maher who is back from our flag means death baby we just talked about him we've mentioned three times in the in the year span of the show and I'm so happy I know him by name now, uh, not personally, uh, but he is Deputy Matt. I'm on the works, show, Matthew, we love you. <laughs> who, who works so closely with Sheriff Joy. Um, and it, it was so great because we got three different versions of characters he can play. Um, and like I said, I'm just happy he returned to our screens. But I think that the the standout here for me, because I was more invested in the sci-fi stuff, like I haven't watched Yellowstone, but my family always talks about it. So I'm aware of it being like super gritty and all about hardcore ranching, but we kill each other. And like, you know, family. that kind of show, family, power, um, land. And so Imogen Poots comes in and she gives off the vibe. Like she's, so she camps on the Abbott's family's um, Western pasture and she is following this symbol around and she wears a mysterious necklace. Like so many questions I think circle around her as a character and what, and everything that she, that the script allows for her to do just tells us more about this world. She is an exclusive character who seems on top of the shenanigans that are going on, or at least she's one who's willing to push the boundaries of what, of what we accept for our reality. She's definitely the one who, um, I think the Abbots, I feel like the families look at her as being like kooky, but she knows what she's doing and she knows why she's there. I, I will say as far as pure performances go, Imogen Poos is the best. And I've been a fan of her since Need for Speed. I've been waiting for her to get a real like breakout role. And I, maybe this isn't it, but I think she gets, as you say, like maybe she doesn't know all the answers, but she knows the vibe of the show that she's in. And she gets to like play, especially Royal. Like I love the interaction. I never thought like, like Josh Brolin and Imogen Boots would be a good playoff, but like there's a scene between them and like a poker chip in like um, uh, an episode four that's really fascinating. But like every time she's on screen, she has this thing where you're like, you know something and you can't quite tell if she actually does. And how this show intertwines like a community all witnessing a mountain completely like yes. disappear and then come back. Like it, you see it on screen. You see this mountain that's so clearly there. And then it just disappears and you see it pop back up. And that just looks, that looks and sounds ridiculous, but the way our characters play off of it, like the sheriff starts getting calls about people complaining about this mountain disappearing and she's seen it herself. Like I think the story is introducing a lot in this first half. Now, can they wrap it up and can they provide like explanations as to how everything matters? 
where, where I'm, I'm at least strapped in and ready to see I'm enjoying the ride so far. And I think that, um, if this wraps up neatly, I'm, I'm I'll be a fan of this, the seasons to come and it'll be a new show on my watch list for sure. And I think uh, amongst others too. I more or less just want some more tying into it all because to me, again, it still feels like the sci-fi element is so disparate from everything else going on. There is a tease at the end of episode four that like something's big is coming in episode five and like, cool. But like, as far as the first half goes, you know, the first four episodes are basically almost four hours of television and you don't get a lot of context unless you're really locked into the, you know, kind of Hatfields and McCoy style feud between the Abbots and the Tillersons. And if you're not, and you came for the sci-fi stuff, then you're going to be like, well, I'm waiting. While it does juggle those genres, they're very heavy handed on like the, the divide between both families and like the, it's so clear that they have this feud that has been ongoing, but it's like small jabs to each other. They're not outright going to, um, I mean, I can't say they're not outright going to kill each other because you'll see. Uh, well, there, there's like a whole there's like a whole subplot with um, Tom Pelfrey's uh, wife Rebecca, and like we're constantly saying like we're gonna get answers to Rebecca, don't worry, and like it, maybe we do, but like there's been really no tease to it unless it's gonna be like oh Imogen Poots is actually Rebecca, like unless that's the thing, like I don't know what it's gonna be. Neither do I. So lots of questions, lots of reasons to like, I guess invest yourself if if you find that this is your um your taste in in television um let's just hope they wrap it up that's all i pray for so any final remarks brandon uh i do want to quickly say olive abercrombie who plays amy uh royal's granddaughter anytime she gets to have screen time with either josh brown or lily taylor i'm always just like oh like it's not precocious it doesn't feel like unwarranted it's always just like no this is like a genuine like kind of cowboy grandchild kind of thing and i think it's it's it provides like the sweeter context to everything like else melodramatic going on. And I will also say that even though I sound more negative about this first half, I do want to see the second half because I just want to know where they've all been tiling in because if that first half doesn't, then I will dislike it even more. We are wrapping up the latest Marvel Disney plus series moon Knight. Yes. We are officially out of the MCU television shows until I believe July is when Ms. Marvel comes out. Uh, so we've officially wrapped uh, Moon Knight until then. We had the finale a couple of weeks ago. We're finally getting around to it. Again, sorry for all the delays. We've finally caught up. Uh, Gods and Monsters is the finale. We essentially TLDR pick up with Haro. He has power. He gets into a fight with Steven slash Mark. And then Layla gets power. And it's a whole thing. And it's gods and giant fights between crocodiles and Khonshu. And then a big old post credit sequence reveal, which I'm sure we'll get into. But no, I want to go over to you. We have been, let's just say, mixed on Moon Knight. We've been struggling about whether or not to like call it really great. I've seen a lot of discussions about that as well. Did this land for you? And how well does it equate the series to the finale? Oh, boy. I think whenever I start my reactions with that, it just means that I am still living on top of a question mark. Uh, I think that the finale had a lot at stake for it to pull off well um this was you know people i I hate when headlines i mean this just headlines right clickbait they're like uh moon knight finale breaks record for runtime of disney plus marvel series and i was like oh my gosh it's gonna be so long psych (laughs) it's actually the shortest finale and so that's that's what that headline meant um so i really just thought they don't have enough time to wrap this up. Like if they're going to do any kind of like heavy action sequence, I wonder how that will fit alongside our continuing afterlife kind of world that we're inside where now Steven is dead. 
and also juggling like what's going to happen between Layla and Mark's relationship. Who is this third personality who we haven't met yet, who only exists within the blackouts? Um, I don't know. You know, I did watch this about a little over a week ago, so I'm still kind of remembering how how I felt about it. But I think that overall, it, it did feel like a lot that they had to take on. I know I'm not through with the character. I know this finale left me invested really into what Oscar Isaac can pull off for this character who can be so many different things at once. Um, and it introduced a new superhero. You know, we got Layla's transformation into an avatar of an Egyptian god herself. And so now she has this superhero name, uh, the Scarlet Scarab, and she looks completely badass. So now if it's a Moon Knight series alongside Scarlet Scarab, uh, let's see where that goes. You know, uh, clearly there's so much lore behind this and there's so many places that has already gone. I want to see it done again in a second season. It's just isn't asking for a narrower story around Moon Knight a lot for like your average viewer. What do you think, Brandon? No, I don't think you're in the wrong at all. Uh, and quick side note before I forget, it Mae Callumway is the Scarlet Scarab, but there's not a lot of red in her outfits. That just seems like weird costume designing. Uh, that being said, like going back to your point, yeah, this series is, I don't want to say ill-focused, but it's trying to do a lot. It's trying to be a really compelling two-way, eventually three-way, you know, character study of Mark and Steven and eventually our third icon. But then... It's also trying to be this really fun Indiana Jones mummy pastiche. It's trying to get into the uh, the pantheon of the Egyptian gods. It's trying to get into the idea of abusive relationships with Khonshu. It's trying to do a lot. And the finale, I think, is indicative of that. I think much like the Loki finale, I think it tries to do way too much with its pieces and really try and set it up satisfyingly. It works, I think, barely. I think there's enough exciting stuff there and enough interesting stuff there to really make it work. Why it's so short, I have no idea. I cannot imagine why you would be looking at the five episodes and going, yeah, we can wrap this up in 45 minutes. That's ridiculous. But I will say, I thought the final battle looked pretty cool. I like how Vela is given the peak of her agency. I like the stakes of it all. All the stuff with the gods, I should say, how all of that ties into the idea of we need Mark and Steven, even if we don't need them. What were your thoughts around the our major fight being uh, intertwined with this battle of the gods amidst the pyramids of Giza. Like, how did you feel about that? It looks cool. I will say it looks cool. Um, the actual, like, uh, Layla and Layla and Mark versus Harrow fight should be better. It kind of reminded me like the fight in Ant-Man, where, like, Darren Cross is not a fighter, but he has to be for the sake of the final fight, so they just kind of have to do whatever they can with the CG to help. And credit to Ethan Hawke, he is eating it up, and that's more than I thought he would be, but it feels a bit mismatched compared to the giant, you know, kaiju fight that we're seeing at the pyramids, which I thought I was like, oh, that's going all out. And I like that. I like the design of the god that we've been like so dreading uh, the the arrival of in Amit. I think that their whole lizard nature and that long like head that they have. I can't tell if it's I think it's I think it's their hair or something. But um, I was impressed by some of the the fighting that we got there. I wasn't expecting it at all. I was like, whoa, what is this like colossal skyscraper like fight that I'm witnessing? Um, and then I like you, I wanted to know how Harrow was going to end up fighting them. You know, he, how they answer that is they give him this sort of like hammer or like this, you know, this instrument of sorts that he defends himself with that is like super powerful and it can push back, you know, Moon Knight with just one hit. And so uh, I thought that that was kind of weak though. You know, I felt like that wasn't the right answer for giving Moon Knight like this 
this badass like show like if anything i like his fight scene from episode from episodes earlier um where one of the uh the fairground right yes i thought that that was was great in both showcasing the different personalities within moon knight uh but also just giving us some cool visuals of how he acts in a fight uh this one was more spotlight it felt like the bigger fight was between Khonshu and Ahmet, uh, and our Moon Knight was overshadowed by them. I almost wish there was some kind of, forgive my lack of a better word, plot device for getting Ahmet and, uh, and Khonshu back into Haro and, uh, uh, and Mark's bodies so that we could have like a just intimate in-person fight, even if it wasn't like Top of the Pyramids. Like, you could do stuff with their powers and do stuff like that versus having a small fight like this and then the giant spectacle over there that we're clearly supposed to care about but we kind of don't because Conchu has been gone for three episodes. Absolutely. I'm left not really knowing their relationship either. Like, you know, he had the whole arc of not wanting to, um, you know, he, he was so ready to die. And so then he became the servant to Conchu. And now that he's returned, but as a changed person, because he has accepted his past experiences, uh, I don't know where Conchu and his relationship really stand right now. It seemed to be super important, but I'm, I'm left with questions of, is it still like, do we, we, I want to still care about Khonshu because you've set me up for it. And I wouldn't like it if in the future seasons, we just get like just moon Knight, right? Because we're supposed to care about Khonshu now and the relationship. So keep that connected, keep that consistent. On the one hand, I like where it actually ends of having Steven and Mark really kind of, you know, lock hands and be like, yeah, we're going to do this together and we'll figure it out and don't worry about it. But then it gets really dark in the post credit scene where it basically just like, oh yeah, the whole thing of, oh, you, you've outgrown Khonshu, you've made a deal with a god, good for you kind of thing. Khonshu's like, yeah, um, no, you didn't, and I'm not leaving, and just, maybe that's a lineup for our third altar, so if we want to go into that... Here we go, the third personality of Mark slash Steven is this chauffeur assassin? No, no spoiler, if you know the comics, it's Jake Lockley, everyone was predicting it. Tell us about Jake Lockley, Brandon. I'm I'm ignorant here. You got to inform me. Tell me about it. In the comics, he's kind of like an English cabbie, or is a New York cabbie? He's a cabbie from like with a very specific accent. I know they changed it for here so that Oscar Isaac could do more of a natural uh, Spanish Mexican accent. Uh, but it's that idea of they kind of changed it. Whereas Jake is very much like the not evil, but the very anger induced alter, which I'm not sure how I feel about. He's a he's a murderer, right? Like we're getting we're having our superhero in Moon Knight be a murderer and fans of the show and kids going, yeah, <laughs> just kidding. Obviously, I'm not taking it that seriously. And but, so much for so much for the potential of Ethan Hawke coming back, because then they were like, yeah, do it. Just don't watch the post credit scene. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They're like, we don't wrap up Ethan Hawke's Harrow like in the main story. But if you stay for the post credit scene. He's assassinated straight up, like or not even assassinated. He's executed in his in his ride that picks him up. Um, and that's just it was so cutthroat compared to this lighthearted balance of Mark and Steven kind of like pulling for control from each other. What do you do now when you like you give this character the the afterlife challenge of like full, fully knowing yourself and accepting yourself or something along those lines? And then you throw in another versions of them who is just a killer like is that redeemable? Like, are, are we still knowing that this character will will go safely into the afterlife? Well, that's what I'm hoping. I hope that Jake becomes, if we do get a season two or a movie or something like that, that he becomes like the Uber, uh, the Uber Mark, so to speak. Like, if Mark was bad, like Jake is not worse in like a moral sense, but in the sense of like, no, he's not taking anything. He's not going to agree with you. You just have to kind of go with him. And so I'm wondering if 
there's been that panel going around, I think it's from the Lemire run of Jake, Mark, and Steven kind of like crushing Conchu Skull and being like, we don't need you anymore. And I was like, yeah, do that for the season finale. And I think that's what they might be leaning towards later on with Jake as kind of the really personification of Mark and Steven's darkness. But again, I just don't know how I feel about that. All right. I think that um, I'm ready for ratings. I hate to be so negative. I really, really do, because I think there's good stuff in this show. I think it's a six and a half out of 10 for me. I think it's fine. I think it is watchable. And granted, I have not gotten back. I have not gone back and watched it all through in one. I'm very curious to see how this would act as its own just standard six hour story, because I watched Hawkeye and it became slightly worse in terms of just going from episodic thing. But like Loki became better as far as a whole thing. So I don't know. Um, there's good stuff in it. Oscar Isaac is amazing in this. It's one of his best roles, I think, as both Mark and Stephen, and then eventually Jake. Ethan Hawke should be commended on this. Obviously, Mae Callumway is fantastic. I think the directing mostly works. I think the visuals get too much ahead of themselves for what they want to do. If it continues, I think there is room to grow. But as a season, I can totally understand why it doesn't work for some people. Not surprised to be right behind you, Brandon. I'm giving this a six out of 10. I think that uh, the high notes for me would be in this characterization of um, Mark and Steven. They're one and the same in the sense of like what they, like obviously the body that they embody, but I like their relationship and how it changes throughout the series. I like their um their support of one another, because ultimately like it's the support of yourself and the different ways that you are communicating with yourself. Um, if somebody has DID, I think that this does deserve some recognition. However, it, it lands kind of like low on my positive side, being a six out of 10, because of me remembering like some of those really hard to watch, like CGI chase scenes in the beginning of the series. I don't think we needed to spend as much time or maybe any time in London where we got to know um, Steven, because I think that Steven is still recognizable and identifiable while he's operating in Egypt with Mark. I do have hopes for what it can accomplish in the future, but for right now, I think that it was, it was convoluted, but you know what? I I watched the whole thing and I think uh, in a rewatch, it it may feel differently. Uh, Let's see what kind of story we can explore with Layla as she comes to terms with her new superhero identity. And uh, if that ending that you mentioned uh, of the three personalities kind of like rejecting Khonshu's control is something I really think would be interesting translated to screen. So let's see if we get something akin to that. I really hope so. And uh, the Fall Moon Knight season one is on Disney Plus right now if you want to check it out. If we've not spoiled the entirety of it from you, go back and check it out. And of course, let us know how it is. And that'll do it for episode 27 of Plot Devices. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening in. Again, schedule should be coming back on track in the, cu- in the next couple of weeks. So thank you guys so much for tuning in and bearing with us on that. Listen, while we've got you here, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, RSS feed, follow us on all of them. You'll get updates to all of our shows and give us a rating on there to let us know how we're doing. And if you want to keep, you know, uh, talking movies and TV with us, why not tweet or DM us at uh, Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. That's Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Updates to when shows are coming out. Again, schedule is coming back on track as soon as we can. I want to thank my co-host for today, Noah Guzman. Noah, thank you so much for being here. And uh, what do you got going on in your life and what should people know about? Hello, everybody who's listening. Um, going on in my life is I'm going to sit this, uh, <laughs> I'm going to sit on the couch and I'm going to rewatch Stranger Things. I think that the approach of season four and all of the hype around its uh, cinematography and kind of new, new uh, style that it's leaning towards that is definitely going to elevate uh, the eerie and the, and the, the, the all of the strange um, upside down worldness that there is to that universe. I want to do a rewatch and I want to be prepared to talk about it on the pod for any of you Stranger Things fans out there. Uh, you can follow me on 
Twitter at Noah's Plotting. And uh, soon enough, I will be launching our TikTok account in hopes that that provides some more listeners tuning in. So look out for that. If you see me doing some wacky stuff on there, just like it, okay? Just like it, send it to your friends and don't say a word about it to me in person. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Plot Devices. It's like the uh, no context uh, Twitter pages. We don't actually know who runs it, uh, but we'll, but you'll know person listening to it. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King Forty Five. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King Forty Five. Check out uh, both of our work at ASU Odyssey Online. Uh, Noah has his review for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Go check that out. I have my review for Montana Story, which should be up by the time that you're listening to this, as well as another project that might actually be up by the time you're listening to this. We'll see. Uh, I'll let you know. Just again, follow me on social media for all the details and follow my band at Cablebox underscore Music at Cablebox underscore Music. We have a gig coming up at Lost Leaf in Phoenix, uh, June 10th, with our friends in Prince Murph. Come and see us there. It's over. 21 show details again at Kibblebox Music on Twitter and Instagram. So for episode 27 of this fantastic show, I've been Brandon King. This has been Noah Guzman. This has been Plot Devices, and we'll catch you guys next time. <laughs>